Grandparents are not the same as parents. They are different in a qualitative way. I have a few memes that will draw this out. Meme number one. Let's see if I can get there. Whoops, there we go. Grandparents be like, sure, have another. She's got three lollipops and grandma's going to give her another one. Grandparents be like, have a little snack before you go home. See, a grandparent thing to do, it's 4 o'clock. Mom and dad are coming to pick up the kids around 5.30. Oh, we just went to Panera and got some snacks. Grandparents do stuff like that. Uh, another one, I don't care what mom said. Grandma said I can have it. That's true. And then finally, I give up, Grandma. Who's the prettiest girl in the world? You are. Okay, grandparents, I've experienced this firsthand. Some of y'all are acting like you've never had grandparents. I had two outfits in junior high school, two, gray and maroon, gray and maroon, gray and what color? Maroon, rinse, repeat, wash, recycle. There was a point when Jenny was sorting through the clothes of our daughter Jillian when Jillian was a toddler. And she determined that, in fact, my mother had acquired every single outfit that Kohl's made in that size. The same woman, the exact same woman. When I was a kid, we never ate out, Mitch, never. Maybe on your birthday, you could make a case for why you should be able to go out on your birthday. Do you know what happened this past Father's Day? My mother showed up. We ordered takeout, 85 bucks. She didn't even drop, didn't even bat an eye dropping that kind of money. I was like, mom, we can't. And she's on a fixed income. And when the income's gone, it's gone, right? Same woman, different with her grandkids than when I was a kid. When I was a kid, dinner was what dinner was. And if you didn't like what dinner was, tough. And there was often a word that followed tough, but I can't say it in the church house. Okay, so tough. You don't like dinner? That's what we're serving. When my kids were little, my mother, again, the same woman, would make fettuccine Alfredo, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. You want a hot dog on a stick, honey? I'll make you a hot dog on a stick. They had separate meals when they were little. Now, I got to ask you, how many of you have had grandparents in your life? Show of hands. How many have had grandparents? Second question, keep your hands up. Keep your hands up for a minute. If your grandparents treated you better than your parents, keep your hands up. Oh, okay. Most, okay. You can put your hands down now. Yeah, grandparents are different. Grandparents are not the same as grandparents. No one loves you like grandma. And if I say that, if I say and I start talking about a grandmother's love, it's a metaphor. I'm talking about somebody who's going to love and accept you no matter what. Somebody who's probably going to spoil you a little bit. Someone who's going to think you hung the moon. Grandma's love. Now, the Bible is full of metaphors. It's full of metaphors. And the Psalms are full of them as well. And so, in the Psalms, we're told that God is like a rock. <clears throat> Some of you are like, yeah, I felt that rock. That's not how David meant it, though. God is like a fortress. God is like a king. God is like a refuge. God is like a shield. God is like a deliverer. God is like a hiding place. God is like a mountain. God is like a helper, a tower, a father, 
a light. And probably the most famous metaphor of all is Psalm 23. God is like a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Yeah, you've heard this. Psalm 23 is comparing David's, uh, David is comparing God's care for us to that of a shepherd to his sheep. And David is in a sense saying, this is how God cares for his people. Now, Psalm 23 is Hebrew poetry. Now, we like poetry in English to rhyme in time on a dime. We like, because of Shakespeare, we like heroic couplets, two things that rhyme. Even rappers, they rhyme. It's like a Western English thing. It's what we do. But the Hebrews were different, okay? They, it, for them, it was all about cadence. There was a cadence or a rhythm to the words. And so every English translation we have of the Psalms doesn't capture the cadence. And one of the things they love to do was do like three, two, two, three. They love this kind of chiasm thing that they would do in their words and with their poetry. Now, I, I honestly believe one day David, the psalmist here, was sitting around contemplating the wonders of God, and he realized, you know what? God's care for me is just like that of a, of a shepherd to a sheep. He's, he's cared for me. He's guided me. He's protected me when I was in trouble. He's provided for, for me. And so David wrote this poem. It's not a theological treatise. It's not like a long letter from the Apostle Paul where he's talking about different groups of people and y'all ought to do this and y'all ought to do that, just like Amanda read for us. No, it's a poem. And so I want to unpack this poem with you. And I want to talk about shepherding and sheep. And it's book knowledge. It's book knowledge because I ain't never been no farmer and I ain't never been no shepherd. It's book knowledge. But I want to pass it along. So the psalmist, David, he starts off with, the Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. Now, right out of the gate, I got to make this one caveat because how many of you in this room are Americans? Anybody an American? Yeah. Oh, look at that. Okay. Canadian. Hello, Canadian friends. Okay. So <laughs> welcome and Texas. It's a, yeah, we, we'll get on that another day. Okay. So, so the Lord is my shepherd. Now we Americans, we read this as me, as in just me, not you, Sarah, but me, just me, the Lord is my shepherd, me and me alone. But for any Hebrew or is Israelite hearing this, they would go, oh, the Lord is my shepherd. I'm a part of a flock. And me and my means we and ours, because I'm connected to all the other sheep and I'm connected to my family and I'm connected to my village and I have a people in a place and the Lord is our shepherd. So when I say my, it's like saying our. And that's how they think, which is different than how we tend to think. But the big idea here is sheep really can't care well for themselves, and they need a shepherd to take care of them. And when a shepherd is take caring, taking care of sheep, the sheep are cared for. And, the, and David unpacks this, and that's verse 2 and following. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. You ever heard the, the proverb, you can't lead a horse to water? You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink? Yeah, you have. Same thing apparently is true with sheep. I didn't know this. But if a sheep is agitated, 
If a sheep has not been fed, if a sheep is thirsty, if a sheep has biting flies, the sheep will not settle down. A sheep is like a toddler who's not had a nap and is hungry. That's exactly right. Sheep are like toddlers, okay? Sheep only lie down when they've been settled down by the, by the shepherd. The shepherd settles down the sheep, okay? Now, Israel, uh, and he lets me rest. He leaves me besides peaceful streams. We're finally experiencing in Kentucky some dry conditions. I'm so grateful that I don't have to mow twice a week. But in Israel, what we're experiencing right now, they experience in abundance. It's a semi-arid place. Only three months out of the year are there green pastures everywhere. And then the rest of the year, you got to hunt for them because they're not easy to find and they're not just in every single meadow. And so part of what David is saying is the shepherd leads his sheep to the places where they're going to be able to eat and where they're going to be able to drink. Um, in the north of uh, Israel, uh, shepherds will have to take their sheep, sheep as high as 8,500 feet above sea level to get green grass, green pastures at certain times of the year. In winter, they can go down to the lower uh, elevations. And then he leads me beside peaceful streams. See how peaceful this is? It's barely moving. Some of you would go, that's ranky, stinky, tepid water. I'm not drinking out of that. Well, you're a human. And sheep are different. Apparently, and I learned this, sheep inherently understand that their wool, when it gets really, really, really wet, becomes an anchor that can sink them underwater and cause them to drown. And so sheep do not want to drink from moving water because they're, af they're afraid of the consequence of that. And so shepherds will often have to cut out these channels off to the side where they divert a quicker moving stream into a little area where the water is not moving so that the sheep can drink from that water. Uh, and then the shepherd leads. Um, shepherds are not ranchers. And I've talked about this recent, recently. I've preached on this recently. Shepherds and ranchers couldn't be more different. Shepherds lead their sheep. Sheep follow the shepherd. And you know this now because you've had been subjected to several sermons. Every shepherd has a call, don't they? <laughs> Whatever it is. I don't know. I'm making it up. So, even today, in Israel and Palestine, they don't have fences. They don't have big agriculture. In the morning, the, sh the sheep and the shepherds leave the village, and the shepherds lead the sheep to places to graze. And uh, sh you'll have one watering hole, and you'll have all these different flocks. And one shepherd will decide, okay, it's time to go, and he'll do his little call. <laughs> I'm making it up. And then 30 heads pop up, and these little sheep follow their guy out into the next place that their guy is leading them. Uh, and so the, David is unpacking all of this, right? Psalm 23.3, he renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Really, this first, th this uh, guiding me it, in, in the Hebrew, it's, Literally, he brings me back. And the, the image here is a lamb or a sheep that's gotten in trouble, wandered off, gotten lost. 
Author Ken Bailey, in his book, The Good Shepherd, he explains what this means, and he says this. Shepherds in the Holy Land have told me that once a sheep knows it's lost, it tries to hide under a bush or a rock, and it begins quivering and bleeding. <laughs> Shaking and bang. <laughs> and so the shepherd must locate it quickly, lest it be heard or killed by a wild animal. On being found, the sheep is usually too traumatized to walk and must be carried back to the village or to the flock. So that's why a shepherd will throw the sheep around his neck. He brings me back because the sheep is utterly exhausted from crying out for help. Have you ever been to a point in your life where you have been utterly exhausted crying out for help? Of course you have. Of course you have. All right? And then in verse 4, he talks about these valleys. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I won't be afraid for you're close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. Now, I'm familiar with the, the Wild West in the United States, and it's great hiking. And if you go to Utah and, and Arizona and places like this, Bryce Canyon, all these places, you'll have these narrow passageways that are just huge, sheer rock on either side. And you don't ever want to get caught in one of those in a rainstorm because you're going to drown because there's no way out. You got to follow the bottom valley path, okay? Well, in Israel, they, apparently they've got some of those. So one of them is where Petra is uh, located. Petra is this city that was carved on some of these long, tall uh, cliffs, sandstone cliffs, and you can see the narrow passageway. I got another picture that gives you perspective of a hiker. So here's what it feels like and looks like to walk along those things. So when David is saying the valley of the shadow of death, if you're in the bottom of one of these things and it starts pouring down rain, guess where you are? You're in the valley of the shadow of death because you're going to die in that cavern. And then you've got thieves and robbers and all of the other stuff that was part of the ancient world. It's a place you don't want to be. And yet, David is saying the shepherd leads through here and will bring you through it. The other part of this verse is this rod and, and staff part. And here's the difference. And this is what I've learned. We're all familiar with the staff, the shepherd's crook. It's got a giant curve at the end. So yes, that's what the shepherd uses to kind of direct the sheep to lift up a sheep's head to see if there's anything underneath and all of that kind of stuff. The shepherd will use his staff to climb, you know, more steeper terrain, which sheep can do, it seems, inherently on their own. And then there's the, the rod. And the rod is a shorter thing, two and a half feet. Shepherds will embed some iron in the end of it. And the rod is a throwing thing, right? So you're a you're a shepherd and you got your sheep, a wolf or a bear are taller than your sheep and you can zip that thing right over the heads of your sheep and knock the side of a wolf if you're a good shot. So your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So a sh David is basically saying God's care for us involves a measure of protecting and a measure of directing. A measure of helping us against those 
predators that we have, and then some help directing us to where we can have nourishment, okay? And then David does something really amazing with the psalm. In verse 5, he shifts the metaphor. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. So now he changes the metaphor. He was talking about shepherds and sheep. Now he's talking about what it's like to show up for a celebration or an event at someone's home in the ancient Near East. And a host would do several things. Your feet would get washed. The host would anoint your head with a very, very strong perfumed oil. And the reason for that is nobody bathed and nobody had deodorant. And now you're going to be eating elbow to elbow with these other stinky, smelly people. So it was a way to make dinner pleasant. And you wanted the oil and you wanted everyone else coming through the door to get oil <laughs> so that dinner would be pleasant. And then there's this phrase, in the presence of my enemies. So in the ancient Near East, a host would also be responsible for protecting everyone in their household, everyone who is under their roof, so to speak. And so David is basically saying the host doesn't care. So, you know, there's this saying, your enemy, you know, I, I'll get the saying wrong, but there's this notion of my enemies are here, but my host doesn't care. And my host doesn't care if they're mad at him because my host is going to watch out for me. And he doesn't care what my enemies think or what my enemies want. And then this other part of my cup overflows with blessing I don't know if you've ever been to a really good restaurant where no matter how much you drink, it's just full, it's full, it's full. Every time you turn around, your glass is full. And you're like, I didn't even see the server. How did they get back to the table? This is incredible. It's like a magic cup of Coca-Cola. Who invented this? This is awesome. David is kind of speaking to that overflowing. Your, your cup is never going to run dry. It's never going to run out. Okay? So... God's care for his people is like a shepherd cares for his sheep. God's care for his people is like a gracious host who cares for his guests, which begs some questions of us Americans here in 2022. The first question, of course, is this. Do you find it easy or difficult to trust God? A God you can't always see with your eyes? A God you're not always sure what he's up to in your life? Do you find it easy or difficult to trust God? And then the second question, where else have you been turning for provision, care, or comfort? Where else have you been turning for care, provision, or comfort? Since it's the church house, and I'm supposed to be honest every now and then, I can tell you that during the coronavirus pandemic, when I was working like a maniac and all of you were struggling and everybody was struggling and we couldn't gather and it was so hard, do you know what your pastor turned to? Jelly beans and ice cream. And NCIS. That's correct. Kristen is correct. <laughs> okay? None of those things settled me down the way God can settle me down. God's settling down of us is different in a qualitative way, okay? 
So let me suggest some ways that you and I can take this home. First of all, this would be a good week to take stock of your tendency as a sheep. You're a sheep if you're part of God's people. I've got good news for you. You're a sheep and you have a shepherd. Is your tendency to kind of, oh, the flock's over here. I'm going to go over here. Oh, the shepherd's going this way. I'm going to go this way now. Or is your tendency more like Dory from Finding Nemo? Oh, look, what is that thing over here? This is amazing. Oh, my goodness. Where'd the flock go? Where's the shepherd? Oh, my goodness, God, like, you need to understand what your tendency is, okay? Is it to kind of stay with the flock, or do you have a tendency to get distracted? If your tendency is to be with the flock, a growth area for you is going to be taking risks. If your tendency is to get distracted and be dory and, and wander off, your growth area is going to be strong fences and guardrails that are in your life to help you stay in the flock and stay with the shepherd. The second way to take this home, if you make or earn money, give a portion back to God. I know this sounds crazy, but I'm going to explain it to you. When Jenny and I were young uh, and, and first married, a pastor preached a sermon on tithing. And it made me so mad. I made an appointment to go sit in his office and argue him down and tell him what an idiot he was and how he was misinterpreting scripture. And that's not what God meant. And as a result of that meeting, I left feeling challenged and convicted to begin tithing on our net income. <laughs> <sighs> Thanks, God. Thanks, Pastor Steve. And so we did. It's changed over time, Paul. <laughs> and the percentage has also changed over time. Okay, so I say that to say this. Uh, when you give a portion back to God of what God's put in your hands, it helps you with the trust thing. Don't ask me how, but I'm going to tell you it's the weirdest thing. Giving back to God a portion of what he's put in my hands has made it easier for me to trust him rather than harder for him, me to trust him. It's, it sounds strange because you're like, well, I have less now. You know, it seems like it would be hard, like, it seems like having less, it would be harder to trust God. No, I'm just telling you, it, it, it's this weird way in which God and life work. So for those of you that have never done this before, I want to encourage you to pick a percentage. A lot of people have started at 10% on net or gross. If that scares you, start at 1%. You know, faith is faith. A little bit of faith goes a long way. Start at 1%. So if that's $325 a week, that's $32.50 if it's 10%. It's only $3.25 if it's 1%. And the reason I talk about percentages is because that's how God sees things. Um, I've talked about this before. Y'all know the Corman family in our community, right? They've got the big airplane hangar and, and all the fences everywhere all over Jessamine County, right? They own a cattle on a thousand hills, literally, <laughs> okay? So if somebody were to give me $5,000, I would be like, holy cow, that's a lot of money. But if one of the Corman heirs were to give me $5,000, I would still be grateful, but I would also think, well, you got a lot more, right? <laughs> God kind of sees things in a similar way, right? So start with a percentage. One of the myths that you and I deal with as Americans when it comes to God's provision and care for us is that we buy into this myth that if we just have enough hustle and energy and go out there, we can make it, right? You just... You just get a little gumption and a little bit of energy and you pull yourself up from your bootstraps and you got there and you just, boom, life will unfold. Eh, 
<laughs> Will it? Okay, so it's better, better to trust God. The third thing I would suggest, look around this room. Look around this room for a moment. These are other sheep. These are other sheep. It's good to gather with other sheep. Um, in, in another message, I talked about how shepherds at night will gather sheep in a pen. And a pen is a safe place for the sheep to be for the night. When Christians gather for worship, when they gather for Bible study in small group, they're in a sense in the pen. And I say that because in this church family, if you want to work with kids or youth, we screen you, we vet you, we don't just let anybody do that. Um, and your pastor and your church leaders work hard to root out things from this flock, like bitterness, divisiveness, all the enmity, all the kind of things that drive you nuts about religious people out there, okay? All that is to say this is a safe place. This is not a perfect place because I'm here and because you're here, but this is a safe place, okay? So gather with the sheep in the pen, and then the fourth thing would be this. I found that sometimes childhood experiences or life experiences can cause you and can uh, cause you to, 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 to not want to trust God, can affect your ability to trust God. And so sometimes it might take walking through this with a competent, qualified therapist to kind of unpack what is that, what's going on, but I just want to shine a light on it for a second to say, if you've ever found yourself saying something like this, well, you know, I just can't trust people because, you know, people will always let you down. That might be an indicator, ding, 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 <laughs> that whether you realize it or not, some of that could be transferring over to your heavenly father, who is not like the people who have let you down, okay? So those are just four suggestions. Why would you wait until your last dying breath to actually trust God, right? I mean, if you think about it, at the end of your life, there's this moment where you're about to slip from what is here and now to whatever is on the other side, resurrected life, or heart, right? And in that moment, you're going to have to trust God. <gasps> Why wait until that moment? What would it be like in your life if you were trusting God this week on things of much smaller scale, relationships, provision? I don't know what it is for you. Um, so we've talked about sheep and shepherds, but I want to come back to grandparents because chances are, how many of you have grown up on a farm? Anybody? Maybe one or two have been spent some time on a farm. So David's imagery and David's metaphor is, is in some ways lost on us because it's not part of our daily experience to, she, to see shepherds and sheep out there every single day and for us to go, oh, the Lord is my shepherd. I get it. But all of you or many of you have had grandparents, okay? When I was a kid, my mom would ship us off to Grandma and Grandpa Vanderpool's house in Jonesboro, Indiana for two weeks every summer. Uh, Grandma and Grandpa camp, two weeks. And while we were there, so my grandmother, Grandma Vanderpool, she had debilitating arthritis. So her hands were all gnarled. Her feet were gnarled. She was always using a, uh, a walker or a wheelchair to get around. But she treated my brother and I like royalty. 
Like we ate well. She took us to the library. She took us to her friend's uh, store. So friends of theirs from church owned the Ben Franklin Five and Dime store downtown Jonesboro, Indiana. She would take us there, and we got to pick out, you know, within a certain dollar amount, anything we wanted. When I became an adult and realized how little money my grandparents had and what they were doling out for Brent and I to go to, the, I was shocked. I was like, you couldn't have afforded, like, what, are you crazy, right? Grandparent generosity, grandparent generosity. So even though I've not been a farmer or a shepherd, I have been a grandson. And growing up, I got two weeks every summer to get a bit of a glimpse or a glimmer of what it must mean for God to care for me, for God to provide what I need, for God to settle me down, for God to protect me. And that's what I hope you will have for you.